Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for a Creative Writing Podcast Series. Today, we present a conversation between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Nikki Reimer. My name is Mahmoud Ababne and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, the speakers discuss various important subjects. They meticulously distinguish between Calgary and Vancouver as cities of different cultural production. Contestation over space and finding proper spaces for artists are some of the concerns that Fitzpatrick and Reimer raised. They also talk about their work, Coast Mountain Foot, and Behind Drywall. The speakers also share their experiences of engagement with the literary scene in Calgary in the past, and they also comment on the constant shift in the poetic production today. Ryan Fitzpatrick is the author of four books of poetry, including the recently published Coast Mountain Foot and the forthcoming Sunny Ways. Over the last 20 years, he has been involved in the poetry scenes of Calgary, Vancouver, and Toronto. He's the publisher of Model Press, an online-only poetry micropress that started as a pandemic project. Nikki Reimer is a poet, artist, and nonfiction writer living in southern Alberta. Her published books are My Heart is a Rose Manhattan and Downverse. Her work has appeared on stages, billboard, public art exhibits, pop-up bistro menus, and in various magazines, journals, and anthologies. Reimer has lived and worked in Calgary and Vancouver. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, uh, Tea House podcast listeners. Uh, my name is Ryan Fitzpatrick, and I am a writer. I'm here from my spacious basement apartment in uh, Toronto, Ontario, in the Beaches neighborhood, uh, about a 15-minute walk to Lake Ontario. With me is Nikki Reimer, who is in uh, what neighborhood did you move to in Calgary? I am in the southwest, now called inner city neighborhood of Killarney. I vaguely know where that is. Where's is that in relation to uh, McLeod Trail? Um, As the center line of the city. Okay. It I is imagine it's west, west of... It is west of McLeod Trail. 
if you were to get on the Glenmore and then get on the Crowchild and then hit the 17th Avenue exit, okay. uh, you could you could get to Killarney that way. 17th going east or west? West. Okay, that's interesting. I so would have placed it closer to Marta Loop. Uh, in my in my in my completely yeah, incoherent a, imagination of the city of Calgary. It's about a half hour walk to Marta Loop, okay. or like a five or seven minute drive. It's a half hour walk, but it would be like fifteen minutes if Crowchild Trail wasn't there. That's right. So uh, to give to give this a little context after our little routine there. So this is the second recorded chat that Nikki and Eva have uh, done or will have done at the end of this that you're currently listening to. Uh, if you want to go listen to the first one, we previously uh, held an event at Shelf Like Books back in October 2021. That was it was ostensibly a launch for our recent books. So Nikki uh, has a chat, a recent chat book called Behind the Drywall with Calgary's uh Geetha Press, which I hope I'm pronouncing correct, which was a collaboration with printmaker Andrea McKenzie. And I released my third book of poetry, Coast Mountain Foot, which was published by Vancouver's Talon Books. And in that, in that recording, which you can find on Shelf Life Books uh, YouTube page, Nikki and I read from those two projects and we were interviewed at length by Kit Dobson. And we thought about doing that rather than traditional book launch, partly because you can, I think in the age of the pandemic and the age of Zoom launches, you can only uh, read into the camera, read into your laptop camera so many times with the same reading, it doesn't have the same effect as going to different audiences in real space. So we thought it would be interesting to, uh, you know, ha- actually have a conversation about the books. And uh, and we knew we'd have a lot to talk about because we've known each other for something like 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did our undergrads together. And on top of that, we share a lot of concerns in our poetry. Specifically, we, we share a uh, kind of connection to uh, both the city of Calgary, where we both grew up, me and Ogden and Nikki in Woodbine. And we both spent sizable amount of time in living in Vancouver. Nikki, because uh, her partner, Jonathan, was doing a PhD at Simon Fraser University, and me, because I did a PhD at Simon Fraser University. We overlapped a little, but we were never kind of, during that whole time, we were never really in the same city at the same time for very long. And so we had this chat with Kit and uh, we thought that went so well that we'd like to continue it. And then luckily, um, uh, Larissa Lai came along and, and asked us to do this tea house thing. That's the intro that I thought I would give. Does, it, does that work for you, Nikki? Did you want to add anything? No, that's great. That That is the context for why we're here together today. And we've pre-game this a little bit. So we've chatted about what we want to chat about. Uh, I'm hoping we don't repeat too much from the uh, the Shelf Life event. So like, we're not going to read from our books or anything. You need to hear us read from our books. Uh, you can go onto the internet and uh, either watch that Shelf Life event or there's other videos probably of us reading. Or you could just like find a friend or family member who you are in some kind of real life or digital proximity to and get them to read it to you. And that, that'll work just as well. It might actually be more satisfying than getting at at least for my work it'd be more satisfying because i'm not a very good reader so we pre-game this we have some things we want to talk about but this might be a bit more freewheeling before i jump in i also want to kind of acknowledge and thank uh mark herman lynch who's kind of like hovering in the background on this zoom screen he says he'll be quiet Uh, Maybe you'll hear him, but we won't know for sure until we record this. So just to kind of like give you a sense of the shape we had talked about, we're going to talk a little bit about Nikki's chat book, Behind the Drywall, and we'll talk about my book, Coast Mountain Foot. And then we're hoping to kind of, we'll get into both of those, 
but also we're hoping to talk about one of the things we didn't really get to dig into in our conversation with Kit, which was to think about Calgary and Vancouver as um, like cultural spaces of cultural production. Like what are the kind of differing conditions and the um, different contexts and like what are our experience, especially what are our experiences of those two spaces as kind of poetry cities. And they both are very much like poetry cities. And I think in the, I listened to a bunch of the shelf life talk that we had that Nikki identified them as kind of opposites and in many ways. So I feel like I should hand the, hand the baton off to you, Nikki, because otherwise I'll just keep talking. <laughs> okay. I can take it. I can take it. Relay race style. I've got the baton. I'm headed down the track. It's as far as that metaphor can go, because I, I really know nothing about um, track and field. But so I'm going to talk a little bit about Behind the Drywall, which, uh, as Ryan mentioned, is this chat book that came out with Gaitha Press, illustrated really beautifully by Andrea Mackenzie Engel. I'd encourage you to look it up if, if, if you're interested. It's printed in a really beautiful two-tone two-tone color scheme. So it's yellow and gold. And throughout, there are graphics graphics of Calgary, but really graphics reminiscent of the Calgary where I grew up in the 1980s. It has kind of a vintage feel. It's a little bit sepia toned. There's, it's a bit reminiscent of a map. And where I was coming from with the text I wrote was just sort of trying to think through Calgary as it has been marked by the oil and gas industry. It's been a more or less for better or for worse, often for worse, a, a one industry town for as long as, as oil and gas has been in existence. The fortunes of the city of Calgary have risen and fallen with the fortunes of oil and gas. And of course, that, that narrative, which is the dominant narrative, that narrative very much leaves out any mention of who or what was here before. And of course, we know that, you know, a an extractive industry like oil and gas is only possible because of the fact that indigenous people and indigenous rights were cleared off this this land, cleared off, cleared off the lands that held the oil and gas. And so the fortunes that rise and fall really are, are fortunes of largely white men. Not that that's something that I am speaking to directly in this text that I've written, but I feel like there are a few different kind of subtexts running through it and stories kind of in between the lines of the chapbook that an astute reader might pick up. So really the, the story I was trying to tell was Calgary on this one trajectory. And if things go the way that it seems like they might go, which is that that climate change is going to get worse and that the oil and gas industry is on, on its way out, what does that mean for this place? Does it dry up completely? And and one of the images that I make or one of the images that I that I create in, in this book is that image of drywall, which you can think of that as something that comes up when things are being built, but also something that comes up when things are in the process of being eroded. And so in the case here, the plus 15s in Calgary, which for those who aren't familiar, I think it's 15 meters. Is it 15 meters? I should have looked this up. Why they're called plus 15s. I think that's I think that's right. Yeah. So they are they are above street level. They connect the malls and the office buildings downtown. And so when we're having our brutally cold winters, a person can actually walk through from building to building and not have to ever go outside, which is really kind of bizarre culturally. Um, 
And as far as city, as far as city making goes, it's it's a weird way to make a city, right? It's quite something really sterile and anodyne about it. But when this industry, at times when it has been booming, when pockets have been flush, when money's been flowing, you know, your the plus fifteens would be full and bustling, and you know, shopping is populous, and the vendors are quite doing quite well. Contrasted to now, when there's been a downturn in the oil and gas industry, there's been companies that have vacated the city, head offices have moved elsewhere out of out of Calgary entirely. And then we've got the pandemic. And so, so many of these spaces, these these businesses, little and big businesses are just boarded up entirely. And, and so the image is you're walking through a space and it's empty and, it, and it's just drywall after drywall after drywall. It was interesting to think about because I was I was listening to when I rewatched parts of the the shelf life thing, you re- basically read the whole chapbook, like in it, which was great. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that struck me in your reading, and then some of the conversation that happened afterwards, was this thinking about like clearing out. Uh, and in my notes, I've got like things written like, uh, like the idea of the ghost town or the ghost tower, or you talk about like Bankers Hall being being somewhat empty, you mentioned Detroit, and mm-hmm. even even though like you you ask well who's who's Detroit are we talking about in part what you're talking about is the way that like the the suburbs kind of ended up getting emptied right mm-hmm. and I was thinking about like that alongside like the kind of suburban placelessness that uh, Gary Burns deals with in like way downtown and Radiant City mm-hmm. and the way that's kind of like tied to car culture in a certain way on top of those I was also thinking about like, the way real estate is tied to kind of masculinity which is something something Say you more mentioned, about that the, the kind of cowboy masculinity I, well, I was thinking about because huh. i i just spent a month in calgary and like i get more no- news off my parents tv in a month in calgary uh than i do at home because like i don't consume news in the same way when i'm by myself than when i'm at my parents house and it's cnn or local news or whatever and the local news uh when they weren't talking about covid because of course omicron was the big news story of december 2021 uh they were talking about the arena deal Mm. why the arena deal was falling apart as if the the arena deal is like the great the great hope for for calgary right now for a lot of people and to me, that's tied to like tied to the stampede. Partly, I'm trying to transition because I know you wanted to talk about the stampede a bit, maybe. Um, yeah, I want to talk about the stampede a, a bit and the book Stampede by Kimberly Williams, who's a feminist theorist and and prophet MRU. Uh, yeah, but yeah. P- partly, I partly I, I want to prompt you to like talk about that because you want to talk yeah. about it. But I'm wondering if yeah. there's like some kind of connection to like this question of stampede and like to me, stampede is this kind of macho thing yeah. that happens in Calgary every year. And what kind of ties there are to that and like real estate. Because in Calgary, of course, that's why like Victoria Park, the neighborhood basically just doesn't exist anymore, except as mm-hmm. parking lots that are named Victoria Park. I, and I think like very much tied to like the East Village and the way that kind of got parking, parking lotified <laughs> at a certain point because they wanted to build condos there. And I don't, I, did they ever finish build, building condos in that area or is it still filled with parking lots? The East Village has become quite a number of condo towers. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's quite transformed from from the parking lot that it was in recent past. Yeah, okay. Although really the gentrification continues as far as pushing poor people out, pushing marginalized people out, making spaces that are for the moneyed class only. That's something that continues, has continued. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, well, like, Basically, I just want to ask you, like, what what do you see, like, as the connections between um, the the stampede as this kind of one of the ideological vibes of the city, 
if the oil industry is one, Stampede is another. And even though those are kind of like locked together and what those might have to do with like real estate. Because I think think the arena deal to me is like, that's those things locked together, but I haven't articulated it for myself very well. That's a really interesting question that I want to kind of try to circle back to. What Kimberly Williams is saying in in this book, and it's uh, Stampede, and the subtitle is Misogyny, White Supremacy, and Settler Colonialism. It was both fascinating and kind of heartbreaking for me to read it at, at, at my age, having grown up in the city of Calgary and kind of viscerally hated a lot of what she is speaking to in the book without having the terms to articulate it, right? Ha, you know, having grown up in it. She's, she's an, an immigrant to Calgary. She's American, and she came here and witnessed truck nuts on trucks. And and, and went to the stampede and was like, what the fuck am I looking at? And, and that was the impetus for, for this book. And you were referring to oil and gas and then the stampede as being two different kind of components of the engine that's the city of Calgary. In this book, she shows how it's it's the same thing mm-hmm. and, and how the stampede really just is furthering the interests of the oil and gas companies and painting a particular picture in order to painting a particular picture of like the history and and the present in order to further the fortunes and further the cultural stranglehold over the city. And and I'm not doing it justice. I would just encourage everybody to to pick it up cuz she she does such a a fascinating job of interrogating these these claims that the stampede makes about how we're greatest together and and so like who is that really? You know, taking a look at the toxic masculinity that that is exemplified and, and furthered by all of the, the the images and the language around the stampede. And then you're right, real estate really does tie into that in terms of that corporation, which is de facto the city taking land for itself when it wants it, right? Clearing out bits of history here and there, relegating what was the Indian village and then becomes the First Nation village. That was always at like the farthest edge of the park. Yeah, like right? on the... Like- the south, like, the southern edge, yeah, yeah. So, so even even looking at what the gets, southern edge, right? The southern edge, right by the graveyard. That's right. So, what gets to have a place, and what place, right? What place is given to who? I don't know. It'd be interesting to know. I'm I'm sure there are more connections with like who's on the board of the Stampede mm. and what what companies they own. And I, you know, I I don't know. I haven't I haven't looked into this, but I'm sure there are connections between the development companies and the Stampede. And so yeah. it does become that that partnership relationship where these things are all connected as, as we know that always they are in cities and and of course like real estate and and power and land and who gets to have a space is very much the story of Vancouver which is the story that you talk about in Coast Mountain Foot but uh, maybe is that a segue is this the segue point <laughs> well I have to I've got a file open on this other screen I just have to wheel it down because I wrote a whole thing because the thing I didn't want to do... I didn't write were, any things, Ryan. I'm just winging this. Well, you did a really good job I've got my kombucha talking. tea and I'm just, uh, I'm off the cuff here. Well, I wrote something because like what I really would like to do is I really don't want to talk about George Bowery. Fair. Because I feel like, because I, I made this uh, stupid joke decision uh, to name my book kind of after this George Bowery book. And here I am talking about George Bowery after saying I don't want to talk. So uh, Coast Mountain Foot of course, is uh, is a play on the title of George Bowering's uh, 1968, I think, book, uh, Rocky Mountain Foot, where he moves from Vancouver to Calgary and then writes this long poem about, it's like about Calgary's history, but it's a lot of it's about just his experiences in the city and he spends a lot of time complaining. So I like 
was annoyed by it when I first read it as somebody who had recently moved from Calgary to Vancouver. And so I started making jokes that I would uh, do, do a revenge on George Bowery by writing a book about Vancouver and how it sucks. And that would show him. But of course, I, I didn't do that because that's boring, right? But once I realized I was writing this book that was about Calgary and Vancouver at the same time, it made sense to give it that title. But uh, I, I kind of want to talk a bit about like, I want to ask the question, because I, I say this thing in the back of the book where I say Coast Mountain Foot was written over a decade and a half, mm-hmm. which I feel is misleading. It's super misleading because it makes it sound like I spent 15 years writing this book, which I didn't. I kind of worked on it. Like the pieces are like some of the pieces are 15 years old. So I wanted to ask, like, where did my thinking for Coast Mountain Foot actually start? So the, the notes that I've done on this file are just me kind of trying to track my track my steps to like find my keys, uh, retrace your steps, like they say. So the manuscript, when I worked on the manuscript, I, I wrote, I pretty much wrote the manuscript or kind of pieced it together in, over uh, 2017 while I was finalizing my uh, my PhD dissertation. I was writing it in kind of pockets of time to distract myself so I wasn't constantly just like zero laser focusing on the dissertation. I had this thing to kind of blow off steam with. That sounds um, very mentally healthy. Uh, it, it was. It was. And then I did the postdoc and I kept doing it and I ended up writing way more poetry than I did academic work. But <laughs> what do you do? So Coast Mountain Foot looks like it starts with Bowering, but it, it, it started way earlier. So I was wondering, maybe it started with my project in uh, Fred Waugh's undergraduate poetry class that we took together, which which was a project where I tried to write about my the neighborhood I grew up in, Ogden, where I think I was still still living there with my parents. That uh, in 2000, when we would have been taking that class, uh, Ogden was dealing with the fallout of the Linwood Ridge. We want to talk about uh, the Petro City. Mm. Here's the Petro City kind of like harming its harming its own in a certain way. So the the Linwood Ridge, for folks who don't know, is a kind of small kind of pocket of the neighborhood on the northern edge. And in 2000, they were dealing with the fallout of the failed remediation of that area. It was home to an oil refinery until the 1970s. And then they kind of did a, a piss poor job of remediating it. And they turned it into kind of uh, suburban homes, like single family housing. And then in around 2000, they found uh, there was lead in the soil. Uh, and so whoops. they basically, whoops, yeah. So they basically had to like tear down all those houses and like it went to courts and eventually Imperial Oil had to like pay up. So I, I wonder if it started there. Like that was mm. where I kind of started thinking about space in the city. I also wondered if it started with a kind of discarded manuscript of poems that ended up in a way in the manuscript, which was really just like poems that weren't about anything other than just feeling sad and being in Calgary. But they were kind of these like abstract prose poems that like ostensibly had no content. They were just kind of me trying to do affect without knowing what affect was. But they're poems that I rewrote in a kind of like Vancouver style because mm-hmm. uh, I had them lying around. But I also wondered if like, if it started a little later than that, uh, right before I left to Vancouver, where I, I started noticing the, I, I started with a shock at the speed of urban change in Vancouver, but it wasn't, I wasn't noticing it when I was in Vancouver. I was noticing it from reading uh, Lisa Robertson's Seven Walks and uh, Occasional Work. Is it, is it, oh, I, seven I should know this because I did my whole MA at seven, seven walks and occasional work from the office soft. of soft architecture. So I was wondering if it was that because I was reading these poems by Lisa Robertson uh, as this kind of fake architectural uh, design office producing like kind of paper architecture or producing like just kind of these speculative essays, but talking about like uh, the temporariness of space. And the way I, I was reading that at the same time that I was dealing, I, I was hanging out, I was kind of 
I had checked out of the literary scene a bit in Calgary right before I left. And I was hanging out more with like artists and musicians. Mm -hmm. So I was hanging out with folks like our friends, Eric and Mia, Eric Moscapetis and Mia Rushton. And then um, as part of that circle, I was also hanging out with uh, with Laura Leaf, who was a member of a great band, The Consonant C. Also did had a great album of her own that you should go check out if you like music. But they were all kind of, it was part of this thing where space was coming up as a, as a topic in that community because of because artists weren't able to find space they were being it was in the middle of the boom and artists were being pushed out of spaces so uh there were a lot of like art galleries being opened in people's garages of houses they were renting as like shared houses or like you have the example of the arbor lake school which uh they bought a house out in the suburban community of arbor lake in the northwest I think of the city, which I went there a couple times, but they were doing, they bought this house and they were doing things like growing barley in the front yard, which uh, to, not to piss off their neighbors, but it ended up pissing off their neighbors and the bylaw officers had to be called. But there were all these questions of like, where do you, when you can't find space to make art, how do you find space to make art? Uh, so I was hanging out with these folks and Eric and Mia were doing these kind of really interesting interventions at the time. So they were doing like, they had a piece called Z's by the Sea, where they uh, would uh, talk to people, talk to people on the street and get them to make like sleeping masks and encourage them to go sleep on benches because at the same time the city was prohibiting people mm. sleeping on benches as an attack on the homeless. The other one that I really liked was a piece that Eric did with Laura called Imaginary Ordinary where they got a grant to rent a space on Center Street just north of downtown and I think the Tigerstead block and the whole pitch of the piece was that the space was temporary. Like artists can't find spaces uh, but we're going to run this community art space for four months and then it's going to disappear. And there's a kind of melancholy in that, right? I wonder if like I was thinking about, I started thinking about this book when I was working with the working in and around these folks. And uh, and part of it was like I was I, I was volunteering with Laura on the festival that she spearheaded called Choose Your Own, which was all about just using spaces in unintended ways, like going and doing events in parks or under bridges or whatever, which has its own set of like issues. But it was like, how do we think about space in Calgary differently? So I think mm -hmm. that was like where I started. I also wonder if it was like during my MA when when I was at U at the University of Calgary when I was working with Susan Rudy and I had to write a shirk grant and she was asking me what do you want to do and I gave her like three or four things I wanted to write on and she forced me to choose one and the one I chose was like I want to write about Lisa Robertson and, and temporary spaces temporary urban spaces and then once I moved to Vancouver that became really kind of visceral and material like it wasn't this theoretical thing anymore it wasn't like people like play like playing around with space it was like it was life or death for a lot of folks and a lot of that I think had to do with just the the speed and intensity of it it's not like gentrification and renovation and uneven development uh weren't happening in Calgary it's just in Vancouver it was like it was so like fast white yep. hot yeah like it's like yep. a white hot market. And I moved to Vancouver and started my PhD and was learning about this stuff, partly actively as part of my schoolwork, but also just by being there, because you can't be in Vancouver and not pick up some knowledge of these of these city dynamics, like even passively, that when I came back to Calgary, I could suddenly see it. Right. I don't know if you had that ex experience too. I, I did very much have that experience. The conversation about contestation of space is everywhere in Vancouver. Yeah. Everyone is talking about it. Every artist is working on it. Every writer is is talking about it. You know, artists are 
brought in to art wash a space as a as part of the process of gentrification. Yeah. And then they're kicked out. And and people were quite loudly protesting that, right? Rightfully so, protesting that that they were being used to make cool, to make community, and and then kicked right along so that that the money could roll in and do its thing. Folks like Jeff Dirksen that that we both know and, and who you studied with, is that right? Yeah, he was yeah. My PhD supervisor. He, he's he's one of the folks there writing about urbanism in the context of Vancouver and all its failures. In Vancouver, it really feels like you're steeped in it. You're steeped in it happening around you and maybe to you and the effects of it. Uh, you know, you can't not get a really great education in all this stuff. And then you come back to Calgary and you see it happening, but no one's talking about it. That was my experience yeah. is like, where are these conversations happening? Or to me, the sh- the shocking thing was when I realized that like the thing that was being floated in Calgary as the kind of progressive radical solution which was like okay we need to like we can't just keep doing sprawl we have to densify we have to build condos instead of like uh, single family housing need bike lanes we need like and I don't want to argue with all with all that stuff but it was it was funny to me that those were the that was the conservative edge in Vancouver yeah was like bike lane urbanism and people were people weren't like out there demanding of their government that they uh, densify the city. They were out there demanding social housing. It yeah. was very different. So it was it was interesting as I was kind of writing like it was it's funny to me that it took all that time to kind of be ready to write this book. And in a way, I don't even know if I was ready to write this book. It was just like that was the time that it happened because I imagine if I wrote it 10 years from now I'd probably do a better job yeah we get ready to write books through the process of of writing them yeah that's and then true. we and then we go on and fail the next project so that we can fail the project after <laughs> yeah. that it, it was that kind of stuff like um not not well realizing in part that like a lot of the dynamics were the same they were just kind of like they had different histories and were handled in different ways. So it became really compelling to me to dig in and make these kind of like, write these poems that had these like sly little connections and asides, just kind of thinking about like, where where do the meanings, where do the meanings of how we imagine our cities come together? I'm doing a bad job putting this sentence together in the middle of it. Yeah, like well, where- it's, it, you, you did do a really interesting job of that. And I... Like it was really exciting for me to 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 read the book and read the poems and feel like I was maybe the ideal reader as someone who <laughs> has lived in Calgary and lived in Vancouver, you know, and tried to be part of poetry community such as it is in both places and try to be a poet, whatever that means in both places. And you're exploring a lot of the a lot of the concerns that I have in my brain and in my poetics around space and around how how do conversations about space happen and what is it that we're doing when we're living in a place. Thank you. You did a better job explaining that than <laughs> I was currently in the middle of. I don't know. It was it was I, I don't want to just call it an exercise because like it's not just an exercise of my life, but like it, it was interesting to kind of like consciously put those two things together in a way I had been passively doing for for years. I don't know. Do we, do we want to is, is this a, is it segue time again? Yeah, let's segue. OK, segue time. Da, 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 da. Uh, we wanted to talk about like Calgary and Vancouver 
and our experiences in them, but thinking specifically about like uh, cultural and literary production. I've written prediction in my notes, so mm. maybe we could predict something Let's later. Let's make a prediction, yes. Um, but uh, product production is what I meant to write. When we were thinking about it, like the big thing that came up is what kind of organizations were we involved in, in the two different cities? And the kind of natural place for the two of us to start is with the university, the University of Calgary, because that's where we met. Mm-hmm. But to think about like, so we, we, we both worked on, uh, both worked on a magazine together there. It was like a scrappy little DIY thing called, called orange with brackets around it, which I think the brackets are just to make us seem cool. I really like typography. My first book had square brackets and my next book was in all caps, even though people like when it got written about, it got put in like normal case. And I'm like, no, it's all caps. The title of the book is all caps. So is downverse uh, supposed was, to be, is downverse it's supposed, supposed to be in all, all caps? caps. Yes, okay, it is. Noted. Yeah. Noted. Yeah. Thank you. Are- Thank if you. you're writing an essay about Downverse right now, do a <laughs> fine and replace immediately. Thank you. You know, I wanted fake math to be all caps. And oh, uh, yeah? some people did and some people didn't. And I just eventually gave up mm. and just like made it not all caps. No, I'm stubborn. I, I, I cling to my typography till the end. Yeah, I think I don't know that we were just trying to be cool with that bracket. I feel like we had reasons that were more. I just can't remember what they more are. Thought out. So. I, I don't either, but I feel in my brain, in my memories, I feel like it was more thought out. Do you want to um, do you want to tell us what orange was? Yeah. So it was we called it a magazine, but it was a little it was a little zine that we were the editors of volunteer run run entirely by students, I think, I think primarily or or, or only undergraduate students at the University of Calgary. We had a loose affiliation with the, the English department there, but mostly we were figuring out what we were doing on our own and as we went and we uh we solicited submissions we had an editorial process we put the the thing together at the local staples often and ran some events Uh, and it lasted for two years which is pretty good for an organization of scrappy kids who didn't really know what they were doing it felt Um, like longer than two years it felt like yeah it felt like i was on it for two years and i was only on it for the first year i guess yeah time is different when you're younger man yeah it's, for sure. <laughs> it, it's it time is longer um so, and then so it part, speeds up when you age so partly I, i'm wondering how do we see that fitting or how does that like how do we see that fitting in a larger picture of what maybe calgary writing looked at that looked like at that moment because there was like we were at the university but there was also like filling station which wasn't affiliated with the university but started at the university it was like it was put together by like students who were taking classes with fred and with chris wiseman in the uh classic well-known experimental poetry lyric poetry war of uh 1994 1993 maybe uh that was fabled by the time i remember i think i talked to tom muir about this like i think he probably made it bigger than it actually was but no I've, i've i've heard of that from from other people and this is the thing that often happens in poetry where one mode of expression is dominant for a while and then another mode of expression comes along and there's a fight and one wins out at least in that space and and for a period of time only to be supplanted later on right so yeah so that was the moment for more traditional Canadian late 20th century lyric versus the experimentalism that I think we were all more interested in. And and that's kind of where we all we all started as writers ourselves. Well, I think I think by the time we started, like the 
scene had changed even more and it was like there was a lot of like it felt like to me that there was a lot of like language writing that was like mm-hmm. kind of bouncing around mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like people mm-hmm. seemed interested in that they seemed kind of like uh I, I can see in retrospect there were people like interested in like ksw stuff although i don't remember when i first heard the words ksw it definitely wasn't when we were working on orange like it might have been because like uh, there were people like like Louis Cabri was floating around the department and I think Nicole was interested in language stuff. Yeah. yeah. So like the poetics of a space really is made up of who's there and what their interests are. Right. And, For sure. And and an entire scene or an entire community can change based on as few as one or two people leaving or, or joining. That was definitely my experience of Calgary, like uh, even after you left. So like after you left, I got involved with Filling Station, which was like Filling Station is interesting because it has this kind of like, I don't know if it still has this, but like when I was on Filling Station, there was this thing where like Filling Station would have go through these cycles where it would... Um, it would kind of, there'd be a lot of energy that new energy would come in and it would like peak and lots of stuff would happen. Then people get burned out and then it would almost fold. And then one or two new people would come in and like kind of pull it back up. And then it would, it would go through another like peak and then fold again. So like, I think I went through like two or three of those, the big, when I, when I joined, which would have been right after I got back from Korea. So I think you were still doing orange. When I joined, I was going, going to readings kind of casually. I think Tom Muir at said, hey, we're looking for people to join Filling Station. Why don't you come to this meeting? Mm-hmm. I went to a single meeting, which I think was in some office at the Center for the, for the Performing Arts downtown. I think somebody had access to like space. And, uh, and then I didn't hear from anybody for six months. And then I heard that within that span, the magazine had almost gone under. And, but Natalie Simpson had taken it over. Oh, and yeah. so like I was kind of yeah. basically part of that wave and it ended up being me and Natalie and Carmen Dirksen and Chris Blay. And there were other people. There were a bunch of floating poetry editors before they find before I finally convinced them that I should be it. Mm-hmm. I think Trevor Speller was poetry editor at one point. Well, so there were other people. But like uh, I remember that being a really great time because I, I, I felt like actually I could do things in the community that didn't have to be attached to the university, which was great. But I remember it was like after that time that the scene began began to change. This is this is where I'm actually going with this. I'm kind of reminiscing, which is I don't know if it's interesting to anybody other than you and me. But um, but the scene began to change because Fred retired and uh, then Christian Book got hired. And then yep. suddenly you would see people at reading. You see new faces at readings because like you always see new pe- faces at readings in Calgary or you did. I don't know about now. But, no one's, um, the readings are on online, so you don't really see anyone's faces. Yeah, but the, the new people, the undergrads who would be coming in, suddenly they were, instead of being interested in like some kind of post-tish thing or, or some kind of KSW influence language thing, they were maybe a bit more influenced like interested in like conceptualism, which this speaks to your point that like a, like a, a single person or a couple people can change and it kind of changes yeah. the vibe of the scene and like, yep. or changes the, like the aesthetic interests of the scene. And it's not yep. like the people from before went away, but like it shifted things in a way. And it was, I always found that interesting. And I imagine like after Christian left and then Larissa got hired and other people like, like Vivek Shraya got hired. I imagine mm-hmm. like, the the scene now is probably very different because of those shifts in the university. I think so. Like I think I mentioned during one of our one of our conversations recently that I'm not fully embedded in any scene or any community right now. I'm 
you know, I'm really kind of working full time and managing some chronic health issues and trying to do my own work. And that never leaves enough time. Right. And so, I, you know, I, I, I would love to be attending more than I attend and I just don't have the energy. But as far as what I've witnessed, yeah, there's been some some different energy since since Larissa uh, was hired and, and started the work with with Tea House uh, that she does. There's been some some important and, and fascinating conversations that uh, have been hosted there. And and yeah, different different energy for sure. Do you want to talk about KSW? Let's do it. So let's, this is the Vancouver part. So Kootenai School of Writing, for those who aren't aware, it it has since folded, but it was an organization, a collective of writers that started after the closing of the David Thompson University um, in Nelson, BC in the early 80s. They ended up relocating to Vancouver and hosting a, a thriving kind of writer-run center for, I can't do math, for 30 years or so, for almost 40 years. I, d- I don't know. Someone can, uh, someone can do the math later for me. Uh, is that right? 30 sounds closer. Yeah. Yeah. Around 30 years, which is an amazing run. I... Actually, my partner, uh, Jonathan Wilkie, joined Kootenai School of Writing first when we landed in Vancouver. Being able to work with that crew was was part of what drew Jonathan there. Who was part of the KSW at that point? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Now, and I was part of KSW in two sprints mm. over my time in Vancouver. I was I was there for a couple of years and I left and then I came back for like three or four years. And so I'm, I'm going to get all my all my dates or all my, all my names wrong, but, uh, it's okay. Someone, a- someone will pop up and make the corrections. Cause yeah, I'm sure some if, if I get anything historian. wrong, someone will tell me that I'm wrong. Colin Smith was there. Donato Mancini was there. Pauline Butling and Fred Wall were, but I don't remember exactly what year they landed in Vancouver and rejoined. Mm. So that may have been later in the like that may have been more mid to late 2000s oh lordy uh at one point jason christie and jordan scott were part of the collective kim duff yeah there was there were some different names people kind of like came and went Mm. over that period ted byrne michael barnholden i'm missing some important names that are going to come to me later and i don't know i'll be i'll be writing in to issue a correction but coming from calgary for me and and then landing at kootenai school of writing really was was very, very different as far as writing scene and writing community went. It was an introduction to me in class politics and class poetics, which I had not heard a damn thing about living in Calgary and, and growing up very middle class and growing up, you know, the, the child of someone who worked in oil and gas. And so I had a very comfortable lifestyle and was so middle class that I never had to think about class. Right. Mm. And so as a person and as a writer, my whole introduction to <laughs> the idea, and, and this is embarrassing to admit, but the idea of the idea of class and, and labor politics and like the work of somebody like Mark Nowak and, and a whole, a whole host of people interrogating space for the marginalized communities. That's what Vancouver and the, the Kootenai School of Writing was for me at that time. Yeah, that totally tracks with my experience. I I was never in KSW, but I was kind of like KSW adjacent, going to a lot mm-hmm. of their events and seeing people out at stuff. But like, it was it was wild to go from from Calgary, where like I was one of the more political poets around because I had read Annie Marx, to being a kind of schmuck because yep. like everyone had everyone knew exactly what they were talking about. They knew where the rallies were. Yeah, they knew where the bodies were hidden, and I I just didn't. So like it was definitely there was definitely a learning curve between the kind of uh, creative communities in those two cities. But I, I will say like I the one thing I appreciated that was really missing 
from, and I, I, I feel like I know you agree with this because I think we've talked about this before is like uh, Vancouver poetry had a, a rigorousness to it that yes. Calgary poetry never really had. Yeah. Calgary poetry was like people being nice to one another and then we'd go for drinks after the reading, which was nice, but like it was missing a, like a, a kind of spark to it. Very much so. Very much. What are the connections between two two the work of two poets, what are people attempting to do in their work? What informs their work? What politics inform their work? Like all of that stuff is fascinating to me and got the opportunity to witness and take part in. Uh, and I always felt like the stupid one too. And I'm, I'm like the only person around with only a BA. I don't, I don't, I didn't, I didn't get any further schooling. So I always had a imposter syndrome the entire time that I was there, but I actually feel like that didn't matter at the like, at the KSW, because it could be the person you were totally intimidated by didn't even have a BA. Like well, that's, and, that and was that's, the kind of vibe yeah. of it. And that's something that that was really great about KSW is it was about people's work first. Yeah. And writer there, there are, you know, remarkably inventive writers who live in quite marginalized situations yeah. who didn't go that educational route who would be supported by the community materially or, or otherwise and really venerated by the community. Yeah. And there was always this multi-generational conversation around, uh, around poetry taking place all the time that doesn't seem to exist here. And, and that's something that I really, really lament that I don't get to be part of that anymore because it was really rich and generative for me. I felt like I was part of a community, a, a real community, that yeah, I don't, I, I don't see that same those same strengths of bonds. I guess. I think I think there's stuff like that in Calgary, but maybe it's more pockety. Like mm-hmm. there's not that like feeling that you like. I I feel like now like if I went back to Vancouver and went to a reading, I would probably especially if it was like kind of KSW adjacent, even though KSW doesn't exist anymore. I would know a bunch of people there. Mm-hmm. They'd be semi happy to see me. Because mm-hmm. that's the vibe of Vancouver is only mm-hmm. semi happy mm-hmm. to see. Whereas, whereas Calgary, who knows? Like, I might there might be somebody, but if there was somebody at a Calgary, then they'd be coming specifically to see me, not just because it was like a random reading. But we'd see Mark probably. I like Mark. Mark's very to, supportive. M- Mark's very in the friendly. background, and I'm trying to like. Ryan desperately wants to make Mark part of this conversation, uh, even though Mark is here on a purely uh, technical perspective. Um, <laughs> I can be. I, I can be part of the conversation, of course. How do you um, feel about the way we're slagging Calgary? <laughs> yeah. Fight back. Well, I, I think that because I don't know, I, I don't have very much experience with the Vancouver, any other community other than the Calgary Writing Community. Uh, but I do see what you mean in terms of that transience. And and also the kind of like the political divide, the ideological divide, that uh, when you see the Vancouver poets come in, they are very, very, cons- like, they're very aware and not just aware, but they're also very confident in their ideological style. Actually, their ideology and their poetics, right? And their merit. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's not, I, I do see that. That's, there seems to be a separation. There doesn't seem to be the same type of marriage between political ideology and poetic aesthetics. However, I do see, like, for example, how the community sh- is shifting, right? I think, like, when you're saying that the Parisali, the Vikshreya, you have, and now Joshua Whitehead, right? And you have people actually, it's, you're seeing a shift. And I wish I could see people in person because I bet mm-hmm. you anything that this, this would be indicative of something special. Yeah. Um, but what I think, and I, 
And I don't think Calgary is like allergic to that in the, on the poetry front. Cause there is like, you think like late eighties, there was all the stuff like going around, going on around like absinthe magazine. Right. Which was like, who was involved with that? It was like Nicole Markotic and uh, Romy Goto and Ashok Mathur. And was, was Rita Wong involved in that or anything? She was in Calgary at some point, but like there was, there was all these conversations going on about like race and poetics and mm-hmm. in Calgary in the late eighties. Mm-hmm. that kind of like disappeared at a certain point before Nikki and I started mm-hmm. like, and yeah. you could maybe, maybe you would get a whiff of it here and there, but it wasn't, it was nowhere near central. So like, that's, that's my hope for Calgary now is what you're talking about. Mark is that like, you get a kind of drift back to like, to politics. Yeah. And, and also that idea of a sort of stability of, mm. I think it's possible to build, but the, the, and I think this is just my, my, my ethos is that you have to go and build it. Unfortunately, yeah. that's what you have to do in Calgary is that yeah. it, because it is a nascent city and it's somewhat transient, you have to, your responsibility is to go and build it. Unfortunately, yeah. which is a little bit different with, from Vancouver where it's there and you can then support in its growth. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. For sure. Uh, so the other, the other Vancouver. You got me to speak. Yeah. No, yay! <laughs> That's all Ryan wanted from this whole conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I also wanted to, I also wanted to chat a bit about like uh, another because we did two Calgary things. We did or- we talked about Orange. Yeah. We talked about Filling Station. Talked about KSW. So I wanted to balance the scales and uh, talk about uh, about a bicycle, which is like to me is like a Vancouver thing. About a Bicycle was a magazine and a reading group ran by uh, Daniela France and Anahita Jamali Rad, which, which started as a w- women's only reading group. Although my understanding is they let men attend once. I was invited to that one meeting, but I couldn't make it for some reason. But uh, part of the reason I wanted to bring them up, uh, other, other than the fact that I really like Danielle and Anahita and think About a Bicycle is really great and hope that if somebody gets this far into the podcast, they might go check it out is that About a Bicycle had a, had a season where it was split between Vancouver and Calgary. And you were, you were involved in that, I think. I was, yeah. Danielle is one of my very favorite poets and humans. Uh, and Anahita, of course, is also brilliant. Danielle actually ca- came to live in Calgary. She got a job at the Calgary Public Library for, it was like a period of like three months, maybe, or four months. I think it was supposed to be, wasn't it supposed to be longer, but it was like messed up because the flood literally happened like, was the week she started work or something? Potentially. Yeah, that might be true. That might be true. She actually, her first day of work was the day of the Stampede Parade, and no one had explained that to her. And she was trying to ride her bike to work, which is a thing that is a thing that she would do. And of course, you can't ride your bike to work when downtown is shut down for a parade. Um, and so she told me this harrowing story of taking her bike into the plus 15s and trying to like get to work walking this bike. And Which is like some- such a metaphor for like, that's such a Calgary, like that's Calgary yeah. right there. And right? I feel like, I feel like somebody probably yelled at her for having her bike in the, plus oh, probably. In the first place. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, so Danielle was here and, and she actually lived with me and Jonathan for five weeks. Uh, and I got to take part in the about a bicycle reading group, which was, which was rigorous and, and complex and beautiful and fascinating. And we did a, a launch for one of the magazine issues actually at the place where we were living in the Calgary neighborhood of Mount Pleasant. 
Uh, it was actually in our living room. So what what do you want to say about, besides that, it, that it's brilliant and people should try and find it, it might be at the library? Uh, would it be at the library? I don't know. Probably not. I think um, I think the website still exists. You should look up the website. It does. I don't even know if there are issues anymore. I would say like... It was um, also an interesting example of some of the things we've been talking about that characterizes Vancouver poetry and poets and poetics, you know, really that grounding in that that real material grounding in in politics and in the struggle for rights and for space to have that supplanted and produced in Calgary for a time was really interesting. And in this issue, I've got issue two, spring 2013 is what I'm holding in my hands. And there's some pictures that Danielle took of like billboards and hoarding the boards that go up when they're they're building condos and stuff got so those pictures were taken in calgary and it's kind of the same conversation which is interesting to me so uh, like what 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 i'll maybe say uh for me the kind of like the thing that about a bicycle kind of shows us about vancouver and about vancouver poetry or vancouver art is the way that it can be invested in study like and, st- and study outside of the university right because the impression i get of like kind of 80s 90s 2000s ksw is that ksw is really invested in that so my understanding of about a bicycle and of course like i never attended any out about about a bicycle so i'm kind of working off of just written materials and chats with danielle is like each of the each of the five sessions that they did they would put together a reading list of theory and then they would basically have uh, i don't want to call it a theory book club because that sounds dismissive but like it was a bunch of people getting together like outside of an institution talking about theory and its relevance to their lives which to me is it the only time I remember doing something like that in Calgary was where uh, Louis Cabri invited a bunch of people over to his house to read New York school poetry with him. And I remember yeah. just like doing a really shitty job of being in that reading group. Great regret of my life is not reading Ted Berrigan's Bean Spasms closely enough. I think I attended one and also did a shitty job of being part of that reading group. So <laughs> we can we can sit in that shame together. But but looping back, yeah, absolutely. And, and the sessions of About a Bicycle I attended were incredibly generative and like satiating and like just the the chance to have those kinds of deep inter- interrogative discussions that aren't meant to produce anything, right? Like you're you're having the discussion to to examine something and to have the discussion. It's not to produce something that then can be sold for money. It's not yeah. pr- to produce something that maybe you can hope to get a grade on it or, right? Like it's not to further the demand of any master. Yeah. To well, me, even- that was the most beautiful thing about it. Even the magazine, which was like ostensibly the project or the the product of each of the sessions felt more like celebration of the thing rather than a kind of reproduction of it. Like mm. there's no, like you read any of those issues and there's not a real like signal of what was talked about in those rooms. It's just things that people no, who were in those was, rooms made yeah, in response. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and what was talked about in those rooms is for those people only and not for yeah. anyone else. Man, maybe it's time for another something like that. Another something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm too old and too tired to start anything, but I want to support what others are doing. So that's my contribution is I'll be supportive. Yep. Just like uh, just like Carol King once sang. That's, right. that's the song, right? That's the Gilmore Girls theme song, right? Oh, God. Yeah, that will be the outro that will that will play us out.
We hope you enjoyed this conversation between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Nikki Reimer. I am Mahmoud Ababni, and you are listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of Canada Research Chair's program and the Social Sciences and the Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Rebecca Jelaine, Amy LeBlanc, Ben Gunn, Xu Yunyu, Micah Jacobson, Shazia Hafiz, Mark Herman Lynch, Ryan Stern, and me, Mahmoud Ababne. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the works of Tea House, including symposia, panel, and readings, please check out our website at www.teahouse.ca. Thanks for listening.